Hello and welcome to Let's Talk University of Bradford, the podcast that looks at all things Bradford. My name's Chris and I'm your host. Today we're joined by Klaus Pauls, Professor of Chemical Biology at the University of Bradford, to explore his research into cancer, both our understanding of it and the development of more effective treatments. Thank you for joining us today, Klaus. Thank you very much for having me. So Klaus has been working in cancer research and cancer treatment research since he did his PhD and then postdoc, which I believe takes us right back to the beginning of the 2000s. That's right. And Basically, his career then eventually led him to uh, working at the Institute of Cancer Therapeutics here at the University of Bradford. Now, the Institute of Cancer Therapeutics is world-renowned, and it combines you know, genetics, cell biology, medicinal chemistry, pharmacology, you know, a lot of different fields to develop new medicines and diagnostics, um, taking concepts and fundamental discoveries, and then developing them to the point where they can be used at the bedside in clinical use, you know, having real impact in the world and helping people. And indeed, Klaus's work is no different. His work itself embodies that approach and, uh, you know, looking at quite a serious illness that impacts so many people's lives and then effectively aiming to beat it and win that battle. Now, Klaus, I think it's quite important that we kind of give everybody a foundation of, you know, what exactly it is as an overview of what your research is before we delve a little bit deeper into exactly what that looks like and how it works. If you could just give us a bit of an overview of kind of what it is you look at and sort of why. Okay, so um, so cancer is, I don't know um, whether everybody knows this, uh, it's a collection of diseases. Uh, so um, every cancer type is, is different. So for example, we can take the breast cancer as, a, as a, an organ. Um, is actually uh, divided into different subtypes or molecular subtypes. Uh, so you need to treat each one differently. Although they're all breast cancer forms, you have different drugs to treat each one of them. Perhaps about 40, 50 years ago, we would treat breast cancer as one cancer. But now we treat them in different ways. Um, we can do that because we know more about the biology and we also have better drugs. So we understand both shall we say, the chemistry world, how we design molecules, new compounds, drugs, and we understand more about what actually gives rise to breast cancer, and therefore we can treat it a little bit better. So that kind of applies across all forms of cancer. Right. We, we see cancer as this umbrella. It's like you have cancer if you're, if you're suffering with it, but that is a whole horde of different illnesses in the actual when you look at it from a medical perspective and we're starting to realize that more and more as research progresses and if you don't you know it'd be like getting giving someone medicine for the wrong disease if you give them the wrong cancer treatment for their particular type of cancer you know you're not going to treat someone with a broken leg with just a painkiller you need to do something different for it so it's not taking a blanket approach because we're realizing more and more each cancer is different uh, or can be very different and can actually be a totally different type of illness or cause and have different impacts on the body. Yes. Um, I, I probably should just add to what we, we discussed before is cancer. You can roughly divide it into uh, solid tumors and then, for example, cancers that are actually floating in the, in the blood vessels. So leukemia, for example, is a blood cancer. And so you have roughly about 10% of all cancers are those that are circulating in the, in the blood vessels or lymphatic system. And the 90% roughly are solid tumours. And I assume that even though that is 90% of solid tumours, am I right in thinking that 
there's different causes for those tumors and different internal workings of the tumors as well. So yeah. solid tumor, yes, but the actual internals of that can be very different cancer to cancer. Very much. It's very much about the microenvironment, which is very complex and very difficult to understand. And this is where we believe that not only do we know that there are obstacles in terms of the treatment, but also where we have opportunities uh, to treat those solid tumors. Um, you mentioned biology and yep. you mentioned chemistry. Now, obviously, people often will see those as two very different sciences. You know, you've got chemistry, biology, physics, they're different. Now, you work in this kind of middle ground between chemistry and biology that, you know, until relatively recent history, we didn't really know much about. It wasn't deemed to be a, a common type of science um, or research. What exactly is that? Like that You sit in this middle area. Could you tell me a bit more about that just so both myself and the listeners can get a little bit more of an understanding of what it is? Because it's quite an unusual concept, so to speak. So I, I think, um, I mean, I guess this is a, a broader question. Uh, but if you go about 100 years back, um, you had uh, people, scientists like Paul Ehrlich, who was a, a German scientist, uh, who had an interest in, uh, for example, um, compounds from the dye industry that could then be tested for toxicity. Uh, so this would just be a chemist maybe working with a, a toxicologist. So two different scientific fields. What we have nowadays uh, is because cancer is a really complex disease or collection of complex diseases, we need people with different expertise we understand this now. 100 years ago, we probably didn't because we didn't know so much about cancer. So um, we have now specialized people. Uh, we have people who say, um, should we say organic, they're trained in organic chemistry to make small molecules uh, that then potentially can become drugs. And then we have got people who are trained as biologists uh, who understand how to work with cells. Uh, so in this case here, cancer cells. And it's very difficult to get organic chemistry to understand the biology world uh, and the same for biologists to understand the chemistry world. So you work in teams and this is one of the beauties of working in an institute like ours is that within that uh, building we have actually got teams where we've got the different expertise uh, skills. Um, so you have people who have been trained in these and then you have some people who can bridge the different worlds and that's probably where I come in is I was trained as a medicinal chemist, uh, so I, I'm, although my undergrad degree was in chemical engineering, I have jumped a little bit, um, but got into medicinal chemistry. Uh, I have been trained to understand um, both worlds, so chemistry and biology. And I think that's important because as myself leading projects, it's really very powerful to be able to have the vision for where a project is going. Uh, and uh, by understanding different elements of something like cancer drug discovery, you do have to know uh, more aspects of, of how we do the drug discovery. Sometimes the downside to that is you get to know a lot of things, maybe a little bit more superficially, uh, but not become the expert, like, for example, the organic chemist uh, that might develop the, the compounds. I know that team-based work and, and being very team-oriented is very important to you. Um, and on your recent inaugural lecture, you made a really solid point of pointing out all of the different aspects that are done on the projects and by different people. You know, this isn't just you flying your flag and doing your thing. You know, this is very team-based, which I think is 
you know, important to, to realise and also um, it's commendable for you to make sure that all those people are getting the recognition that, that they deserve for their work. But like you say, you can bridge that gap. And I think that's equally as important to sort of recognise is you've got the skills of see, cancer biologists, drug concentration experts, uh, maybe modelling experts who can do modelling for things. You know, all these people are specialists in their areas. But, but like you say, because sometimes they don't understand the other areas of it, if it wasn't for people like yourself being able to bridge that gap, even if it is just superficial knowledge in some cases, like you say, Without that, that project can't move forward properly. So even though you're saying sometimes you don't get the expert knowledge, it's no less important to the whole team and the functioning of the of the project because all those elements, both the people at the top that are bridging as well as the individual siloed experts, without every building block there, every jigsaw piece, that project can't progress forward. So, Yeah, so that's right. And I think where where the training is important and obviously gaining experience. You know, the best medicinal chemists are not people who have just been in the field for three, four years. Actually, you are looking at some very experienced people who have done it for 30, 40 years because drug discovery is so difficult and you learn all the time, which is what actually gets me out of bed in the morning. It's the fact that you learn something new all the time. Uh, but I think what you do learn, um, being able to bridge the different worlds, is you can communicate. So you may not be the expert, but you know how to communicate with the different people in the team. And that includes also uh, patients and clinicians that are also working in the team. They may not be in the project meetings all the time, uh, but they are nonetheless very important. Absolutely. And like you said, that teamwork is is very important and communication, like with anything, communication is incredibly important if you're working with other people. And I think every walk of life, to some extent, you have to work with other people at some point. So communication is going to be a vital skill um, and having someone who can successfully communicate across branches is going to be quite important. Um, but you mentioned there uh, patience, um, which obviously is a big part of when you want to get something to clinic um, and get it out there helping people. Those people you're helping are your patients. And then in the research, you have patients who are helping you with the research. Um, they're included in that. And it's, it's obviously something to acknowledge there. Now, you used an analogy in your recent inaugural lecture, which I quite enjoyed, was you said about how, you know, your family used to have chess tournaments and, you know, your grandfather in particular taught you sort of how to play chess. And you used chess as a metaphor for cancer treatment. And you said, speaking about patients, that, you know, different patients have a different approach to, you know, they've been told that they've got this illness, they've got cancer in whatever form. And some people can be quite worried, nervous, upset. Other people kind of get that drive to tackle it head on and really want to be sort of aggressive with their approach and, and fight it and fight against this, this illness that they've got. Similar to, you know, different chess players might approach the chess match differently and you've got, you know, different types of defences and attacks. And then you use the phrase, which I thought was quite powerful, it's always better to be on the attack when you're treating cancer. But then you also alluded to something which I thought was quite interesting, talking about a particular um, Danish chess player's uh, form of attack, where it was almost like a bit of um, it was a little bit of an unusual move, where maybe it'll kind of throw off their opponent a little bit because it's an attack, but it doesn't come across as this is aggressive, you know, getting to the middle middle ground with your pawns and holding that like you would do in in regular chess to simplify chess a little bit there, and that brings me quite nicely onto this new form of um, cancer treatment that you've been working on, basically a Trojan horse kind of approach where it is an attack against the cancer, it is an, an aggressive treatment, 
but it gets to where it needs to be by basically pretending that it's not. You're masking what it is until it gets to where it needs to be to deliver its payload. And I thought that was quite an elegant uh, metaphor to get to that point when you when you uh, put that together. So thank you for that. I did enjoy uh, listening to that when when uh, I was listening to your lecture. Um, but that does bring me nicely onto the subject of what you meant by that particular cancer treatment. You know, we've kind of gone over a little bit there about yeah. uh, what cancer is and how there is different types of treatments. But this is a new one that you're and you and your team, should I say, are developing to try and try and more successfully target cancer and if i'm right in, in in believing it's attacking the cancer whilst trying to avoid um collateral damage in the body as well yeah because cancer treatments can be quite damaging to other cells and you're trying to minimize that whilst increasing the chances of destroying the cancer is that correct yeah so um so so the first clinical trial was actually it it happened just before the start of the second world war in 1939 in in the united states and they used these sort of what we call nitrogen musters that were actually derived from nuclear weapons, uh, but were too awfully too toxic uh, for human use. So uh, there was some uh, American team um, that looked at how they could make these uh, chemicals a little bit different for, for human use. And that kind of started the field of chemotherapy, which we're still using. And the main problem with chemotherapy is it's very effective in terms of destroying, killing cells that are dividing. Which is but, what cancer is, just to sort of yeah, so, clarify that. So cancer is, especially in the early stages, probably very rapidly dividing. Again, you can't sort of generalize because some tumors are very slow growing. So it, it's not some a problem necessarily with lots of them. So for example, I'm probably digressing a little bit here from your question, <laughs> but um, you can have a prostate cancer and the clinicians might just monitor it. They want, they know that you have a solid tumor in the prostate, uh, but they won't treat it until they start seeing signs of it maybe moving, uh, becoming uh, invasive, and then they will start the treatment. So you can live with benign tumors, which happens, um, I wouldn't say regularly, but certainly in, in some uh, cancer patients. Um, so in that scenario, we don't need to treat them. Uh, but those where we are getting more aggressive uh, cancers, chemotherapy is traditionally very effective because it does destroy those cancer cells that are rapidly dividing. The problem then, unfortunately, is that we have also got normal cells that divide. So, for example, cells of the immune system that helps us in uh, combat, let's say, simple things like a cold. Um, and actually, uh, there are lots of cases where cancer patients have died, not of the cancer, but because the immune system has been so weakened by the chemotherapy that's been given to them, that they've died of something more simple like a cold. So that's the immunocompromised element that you might hear about when you hear about cancer patients, or maybe you know someone who's had to go through chemotherapy. Yeah. That's what they mean by that. Yeah. It's destroying the ability of the immune system yeah. to replicate its what it needs. Yeah. So and and so so that's you can kind of call that in the last century from that uh, start of the Second World War and the first clinical trial up until the end, the during the new century, the the first sort of golden era of uh, chemotherapy. And, and since the 2000, I think we have now entered the second golden era or what we now call precision medicine. It's all about trying to develop, design the new treatments so they're only affecting the cancer cells and not the normal cells. And that is a, is a great concept 
but very difficult to actually carry out in in practicality, uh, I think. Um, so what we're doing is, along with lots of other people around the world, uh, pharmaceutical industry, uh, the lots of academic centers in the UK, just going back to our institute, we don't have too many institutes like ours where we have everything from the design stage to uh, actually testing them into a very late state in what we call preclinical state. So it's still not on patients, but we can go to testing um, our new drugs also in, in, say, mice, for example. This is a common uh, yep. rodent to do. But, yeah, so so the question was about the, the targeted treatments. Um, so we are looking at different things. So going back to the solid tumors. Um, solid tumors, uh, the, the microenvironment in solid tumors is very complex. And this is where it can differ from patient to patient. And what we're trying to find is something that is common between the different microenvironments. So let's go back to breast cancer. If we have one particular um, subtype of breast cancer where we know maybe a little bit more about a pathway, we can target that pathway. So for example, one could be what is called estrogen receptor. So estrogen is a hormone that drives the breast cancer. And we have drugs that are very useful to treat those breast cancer patients that have got the expression of that estrogen receptor. We have another breast cancer subtype that's called triple negative breast cancer, where we don't have particularly good drugs to treat. So what we're trying to do with that disease is we have some very powerful drugs. Uh, we, can, we, we call them docomycin. So these are natural products that have been tested in patients, uh, unfortunately too toxic for systemic use. So the patients don't benefit from it because too much of the toxicity is also damaging normal tissue. What we are doing is that we have recognized that these docomycins are very powerful and we are finding way to basically make them uh, harmless when we administer them to the patient. And then we are using something in that tumor microenvironment, the breast tumor microenvironment, to activate it. So it's, it, the, the analogy is, for example, that you go and switch on the light, switch on and off. Uh, basically, when the, this harmless uh, drug that we give to patient hits the, the breast tumor, there is a switch on uh, mechanism that will turn on that uh, very toxic compound. And therefore, you're only getting, theoretically at least, uh, kill in the, in the tumor microenvironment. So if it does latch onto um, another si- a similar cell that gets to it, it won't have that that element within it, yeah. so it'll stay inert and stay yeah. harmless, like say, until it actually hits something that can catalyze that and get the get it going, basically, as a reaction. So that's the right word there, catalyzing. Uh, so we all know what catalyzing can mean, but in, in uh, biology, for example, there's something called an enzyme, and the enzyme recognizes a substrate that can be a natural substrate that the enzyme has evolved over hundreds of years um, to develop, not only just hundreds of years, but it could be up to hundreds of thousands of years. So it's a very slow evolution of how these enzymes and proteins work uh, in cells. And we are just exploiting what nature has designed in our human bodies. So you can exploit those enzymes within the hard tumor, for example. Yeah. That's what then catalyzes the reaction and gets that compound to become toxic within that cell. That's right. So, so precision medicine essentially is finding things that are relatively unique or totally unique in the microenvironment that is not found in normal tissue. And if you can find a way to activate whatever your therapy is 
using what is expressed in the tumor but not the normal tissue, then you have a selective uh, therapy. And I guess that's where the difficulty comes in because it's then we need to more closely understand the microbiome of those cancers and that's quite a difficult thing to achieve. You know, cancers are very yeah. complicated. So you've got that that issue then of that's what you need to do. And so you, the drug's not important at the start unless you've got the understanding of the cancer to begin with. Yeah, so, so I think this is where we are nowadays is that when we start a new project, um, we rarely start from scratch that we don't know really much about it we already know you know now nowadays um, you go on search engines on the internet you can find tons of new papers uh, on it on a subject so what you do is you go to conferences you get into an environment where you meet people from the, the, the sort of the clinical work uh, world uh, clinicians uh, pharmaceutical world academic centers and you share information and through some of this there are ideas uh, and you might be working on something that is very unique so no, not many other uh, groups are doing it around the world or it could be something that's very common and then you have everybody trying to change the same um, target protein if you like. And that's where collaborative science comes yeah. in you know at the end of the day you're all trying to go towards the betterment of our understanding of something which impacts people globally and uh, collaboration between the sciences and between other scientists can also be very powerful, like you say, when you go to these places. And if it is, if it's something you're working on that others aren't, you might spark ideas in, in their minds. But then if it is something you're all working on, it's like a, a combining of ideas to then try and reach that eventual goal. Now, I know that one success that you did have is I know you did find a compound that could bind to the DNA of a cell, taking advantage of the hypoxic environment within it, which is basically taking again that cell microbiome and and capitalizing on it to prevent replication and, and therefore combat the cancer now i, I realize that also that one that particular approach unfortunately was toxic to other cells so that's a problem to be solved what are the next steps with with that um or like the next steps in the research to try and overcome that problem because they've identified this is a way we can attack and this is how we can deliver that but at the moment it's still kind of doing what chemotherapy does and attacking other things as well. What are the next stages to try and get over that hurdle? Okay, so so there are actually two projects that are slightly, well, they're aligned, but they're, they're sort of going in different directions. So the, the one I mentioned before we did duocamycin is basically where we are developing therapies where we are trying to combat very aggressive cancers that can't be treated with the current treatment options. And we have something, if we can deliver it to the tumor, that is effective against the resistant cancers. The other one uh, you just mentioned there with hypoxia uh, is actually a quite an old field. Okay. Uh, it's one that I actually grew up with uh, scientifically um, because my PhD was on hypoxia in solid tumors. And most solid, uh, solid tumors have got hypoxia, but there are some cancer types where the tumors are much more hypoxic than others. And I probably should just explain what hypoxia is, is um, you've basically got um, in tumors areas of um, the tumor where the cancer cells are further away from the blood vessels. And because they're further away from the blood vessels that transport molecular oxygen, so oxygen from the air, uh, those cells don't receive enough oxygen. Okay, so you can imagine, you know, human beings not receiving enough oxygen. 
think about climbing Mount Everest or diving deep down in the sea, we need uh, bottles of oxygen to be actually be able to uh, swim around in, in the sea uh, if it is deep below. So in, in the same way, cells need to function. So if they don't have much oxygen present, they start behaving in a different way. So cancer cells that are not, they're starved of oxygen, start becoming independent and more aggressive and uncontrollable. Um, and they, these hypoxic cells are very difficult to treat. They're very difficult to treat because our drugs don't penetrate into these hypoxic areas because they're further away from the blood vessels. And the drugs travel through the bloodstream yeah. to get to the cancer. So they get yeah. insufficient amounts of the drug to actually be able to treat them. Radiation therapy, which is the frontline treatment modality uh, for many cancer types, is less effective in cells that are hypoxic because what radiation therapy essentially does is it irradiates cells and it utilizes water molecules in, in the cells that gets broken and they produce what we call hydroxyl radicals. And, and these hydroxyl radicals are very short-lived and they damage the DNA multiple uh, times, uh, so much that actually the cell will die. But in cells that are very low in these oxygen molecules, you don't get very effective uh, radiotherapy treatment. So you have a situation where standard drugs like chemotherapy and radiation therapy is, are not very effective. So when you stop the treatment, when the clinicians stop the treatment, what is likely to happen if those hypoxics have not been treated effectively, they survive the treatment. They may only represent 1%, 2%, 3% of the tumor, and they may not be visible once you follow up to look at scans, for example, to see whether the tumor is still there. Because the percent of cells are so low, they may go unnoticed. And then within six months, 12 months, several years maybe, the cancer comes back. And once it comes back, it's more aggressive because the cells that are left untreated are aggressive. It's the evolution of it. It's like with, you know, if you think about the basics of evolution, the strong survive and then go on to proliferate. It's a similar idea of you're destroying the weak, the weaker quote-unquote yeah. cells. The strong ones are left, like you're saying, they can kind of hide almost. And then once they start to replicate and develop again, you've got a much stronger cancer to try and combat. Yeah. When, for example, if we do in the laboratory, we treat cancer cells with a drug. Uh, it could be any drug. You can keep doing this at suboptimal doses. Uh, so, for example, hypoxic cells that are not re uh, reaching or getting enough of the drug will get suboptimal doses of the drug that they learn to cope with. So basically in the, in the laboratory, what we can do is we can give sort of suboptimal doses of a drug and those cells that survive, we take out, we let them grow again, and then we treat them again with the same drug. And we do this for months, six months, nine months, 12 months, depending on the, the cell type. Eventually you have a, a cell line that is resistant to the drug. And not only is the cell line resistant to that drug, it becomes resistant to many other types of drugs because it's now upregulated a number of problems that is very difficult for, for the current sort of uh, cocktail of drugs to treat. So where the chess in my mind comes in is, and for the clinician is, when you give a drug to a patient, we know how the tumor is likely to respond to it. And so if we are not curing uh, the cancer, which is very difficult, 
we know that it's likely to come back again and we need to treat it. And we know already that we can probably not treat it with the same drug. We now need to have the second uh, option that we have available. And so a lot of the, the precision medicine discovery we have nowadays is looking at what we have already in the clinic and what works and thinking about what are the next line of therapies that we can have. So we may not be looking at frontline therapies. We are looking at second or third options because we know that the earlier ones do treat uh, many cancer patients and, and, and whatever the disease is that they have. So I, I think we need to have this sort of vision, imagination, that we can try and predict what's going to happen in the future with this one individual patient. It is complex uh, and where it is also is difficult is that it's an expensive form. You know, persistent medicine is very expensive in the sense that we need to profile each patient to understand what is the what the tumor is like, but also how when I have my say toast this morning, how I metabolize the toast might be different to the way when you eat your toast and your body metabolizes the toast. The same with the drugs. Yeah. That's one of the, the major reasons why treatment is very difficult because we can't predict across uh, a cohort of, of patients who's going to respond best to the drug. I guess that's the challenge with a lot of medicines, you know, not even necessarily specific to cancer, but just to medicine in general of as, you know, organisms, which we are as humans, we can all react differently to different things. Cancer as an organism can react differently to the same things, you know, in different people. You know, everyone is unique. Um, everyone's cancer can therefore be unique. And that makes it more of a challenge to treat. And I think, you know, like, like you're saying about sort of comparing this to the sort of metaphor of chess is each game's different. You've got to try and plan. You've So you've seen the move that your opponent's made. You've seen the move that cancer's made with a particular patient. You've got to be thinking three steps ahead of what might happen to plan your defense or your attack against it. Um, and it's that constant there is a little bit of, you know, you're trying to predict something which is very hard to predict because there's several options, there's several ways it could go, and you've got to try and navigate that and figure out what's more likely. And if you can, with your treatment, almost trick the cancer into not realising your next move, so to speak, you're then getting one step ahead of them, or in this case, one step ahead of, of the illness, uh, to, try and, to try and defeat it and try and win that win that that game, that match. Yeah. Um, and... It can't be an easy thing to do, I have to say. Um, it sounds, it sounds well, it, it is complicated. It doesn't just sound complicated. It is incredibly complicated, but it's been quite interesting just sitting down and talking about it and getting a little bit more, uh, a little more information. I appreciate that, um, you know, a, a, a 20, 30 minute episode of a podcast is not enough time to talk about the broad range of all the things that you and your team get up to. But I feel like we've covered a lot of ground there and really given the listeners an overview of, of what you do, why you're doing it um you know we're trying here trying here at the institute i say we uh, you're you're <laughs> trying here uh, to uh try and just find ways to cure people um without that that knock-on effect like with modern treatments and just further advance our knowledge to be able to provide those next steps in the future as well so it's about understanding the illness as well as treating it to allow better treatments in the future it's kind of like a, a double-pronged attack of both understanding and treating Absolutely. And I, I think, um, and we mustn't forget also, while we're talking about what we can do in terms of advancing the science, we are also training the next generation of scientists. 
you know, a lot of the things we do is try and error. Students are working hard, uh, you know, on a weekly basis. You know, a PhD is three to four years, and, and through that time, um, they run against a very hard wall sometimes, uh, and it's difficult to to deal with. So, I think we are making advances, but you alluded to it before. It's a team effort, and uh, I'm grateful to all the people who have been working in my team, but also all the colleagues working in our institute. It is teamwork, and uh, whatever project we're working on, everybody's got opinions, and uh, we support each other in what we're doing, and, and so it's a collective effort. Uh, so that, I think that's very important to mention too. At the end of the day, whilst you are trying to advance science, the bigger picture is you're trying to save people's lives. We're all impacted by cancer at some yeah. point, be it someone we know, ourselves, friend, family member. It's it's a horrible illness um, or set of illnesses. Um, and we all kind of see it at some point in our lives, unfortunately. And, you know, whilst advancing science is very important, the reason to do that is to help people. Yeah. And, you know, if that takes a lot of collaboration between people, then that's what it takes. And I think it's it's great that that's recognised and you're all there to help each other out and make sure that things progress in, in the right direction. So that's I think that's a really nice point to end on of it's incredibly important work you're doing to help people. And it's a big team effort where everyone's kind of there to make sure that 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 forward motion can be kept up. Yeah, and just one, I'll just add one thing to this very nice end. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I just want to say that I I think, uh, you know, we're talking about cures uh, of cancers, which is the ultimate goal. It is very, very difficult with some cancer types, but some we are very good at treating and we can cure. Uh, and I think with those that we currently can't cure, with time, what would be nice is uh, if you can go down in the future uh, to the pharmacist and buy drugs like we do for many other conditions or diseases, and we can self-treat and we can live with the disease, but we're not dying from it. So think about diabetes. It is actually now uh, something we can treat and we can live with. And I think with those cancer types that are currently aggressive and we can't treat, in the future we might be able to to live with that disease. And I think that would be very, a uh, very good outcome if we can get to that point. It's the next best thing from curing it is if you can make it livable and more comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's everything we've got time for for this episode. Uh, so thank you to the wonderful Klaus for joining us to discuss this fantastically interesting research and you know, research that's really pushing the boundaries of the field. So thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much, Chris, for inviting me to come here. And be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by searching the University of Bradford. And thank you very much for listening. Take care, everyone.